you've got the, uh, the, the hatchling, and then they go to hoppers, and then they uh, become, uh, you know, adults, and then they fly, and then there's different stages of instars, and then it's constantly going over and over and over again to the point that, uh, as Steve brought out last week, all... Uh, everyone was affected by this. Didn't matter what class you were in. Didn't matter how well off you were. Uh, in Joel one five through seven, the, the drunkard is told, "Hey, there's not going to be any more wine. There's no more luxuries there." Uh, in Joel one verses eight through ten, it tells the priest, "You're going to have to mourn because there's not any grain offerings. No grain for the grain offerings. You can't even do worship because you don't have the stuff you need to worship with." And, and then it left people actually just destitute of substance, so they didn't have what they needed for normal things. So the drunkards have to mourn because there'll be no more wine. The land should mourn because it won't be fruitful. It says it'll be like a woman who was betrothed in the night before her, her wedding, uh, her intended dies. And uh, so there's never a fruitfulness to the, to the marriage. The farmers should mourn because uh, the, their labors are destroyed. In fact, as it talks about the farmers going out in Joel chapter 1, digging down into the ground and finding that there's ungerminated seed in the ground. They planted the seed there and never even hatched because along with the locust plague, there's also a drought. Uh, and so they've got double problems there. And then the priest, it says, in verse 13, should mourn because they don't even have what they need for the normal offerings that were to be given uh, in the temple. And so in Joel 1, we're told you need to call a solemn fast. You need to call a solemn assembly. People need to repent. People need to fast and, and pray. And so the whole nation should get together and do this. And Steve uh, suggested last week that that's probably what our nation needs, and I would agree with him. I think, uh, I think that uh, we need to fast and pray for our nation because I think it's the only hope. There are, there are no politicians that will solve any of the problems uh, that we face today. And, and quite frankly, some of the things they're trying to do to solve problems is just stupid. I mean, the uh, city of New York announced this week that they're lowering their police budget by a billion dollars. Now, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a common sense guy, and I think that if you quit funding police and the police don't have the tools they need and then the police are told they can't even lay hands on people, that pretty soon it's just going to be lawlessness everywhere uh, in, in the city of New York. And defunding the police wasn't the right answer. Uh, there are probably some things we could do to help, but that was, that was one of the more stupid suggestions that people have come up with, and now it's, uh, it's been enacted into law. So there's this, just this whole idea that we need an inner repentance. In fact, it's not this week, but next week we're going to get to the key command of chapter 2, which is rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. That was a powerful, powerful verse. And so there's a significance to this locust plague that Joel's writing about. And the significance is this, that it's really as bad as it is. I mean, it was bad. It lasted for several years. It destroyed all their crops. Uh, they barely had anything to live on. They had to give all of their living to some other country to import goods to, to be able to eat. There weren't even leaves on the trees because of how bad locust plagues are. But he says it's a harbinger, or a, uh, the harbinger means it's kind of a, uh, it's like a, a, a warning 
an outcry, letting us know that something worse is coming, and that's the judgment of the Lord. And interestingly enough, it uses the Hebrew word today here to refer to the Almighty. Uh, we might say El Shaddai today. It's that same Hebrew word. Uh, and it's interesting, it comes from a root word that means destruction. And so one of the things the Almighty can do is bring judgment. And and also he, he's talking here about the fact that there's going to come great darkness now, back in Exodus chapter 10, you remember the 10 plagues against the nation of Israel. Right before there was the plague of darkness, which was the one that, you know, the Jews could see fine, God's people could see fine, but the Egyptians couldn't see squat. They couldn't see anything. And right before that was the plague of what? The plague of locusts. And so he's, he's making, he's looking back to Exodus and he's saying, these locusts, guess what's coming next? You know, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a dark, uh, day of the Lord when judgment comes. Now, the interesting thing is, I think we can all hold on to Exodus 10, that God's people had light and God's people were able to function. And God is always going to take care of his people. It doesn't mean we won't participate in a nation that's undergoing judgment, but God will still care for his own. Well, in Deuteronomy also said that locust plagues were what you could expect if you denied or forgot the law of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 28, 38, it says, you shall carry out much seed of the field, but you shall gather little produce, for the locust shall devour it. Uh, in Deuteronomy 28 and 42, it says, all thy trees and fruit of thy land shall the locust consume. Uh, in, when they read the law of God in Deuteronomy 28, they read it from two mountains. There was uh, uh, basically uh, Mount Horeb um, or Mount Sinai and then Mount Gerizim, and they read the blessings, the law from one mountain. They read the curses, the law from the other mountain, uh, because the law cuts two ways. That's why the Bible calls the word of God a two-edged sword. It's blessings and curses. And what we want to do a lot of times is just talk about the blessings, talk about the good things. God is love. And we don't like to talk about the fact that God is a God of justice and he, he will punish the wicked, but that's part of the truth too. And then the efforts of men are, are useless. And so when God's judgment really comes, it won't matter what we do, we won't be able to uh, avert it in any way. Now, there's a couple interesting accounts or several interesting accounts in history of locust plagues. Let me read you one or two. In South Africa, and this is back in the 1800s, but South Africa has recently gone through this again. It says, for the, ten, for the space of 10 miles on each side of the Sea Cow River and 80 to 90 miles in breadth, an area of 16 to 1,800 square miles, the whole surface might literally be said to be covered with them. The water of the river was scarcely visible on account of the dead carcasses which floated on the surface, drowned in the attempt to come at the weeds which grew in it. Again, in Cyprus, it says the locusts lay swarming above a foot deep in several parts of the high road, and thousands were destroyed by the wheels of the carriage driving over them. And so uh, just a, an amazing amount of destruction. Okay, Donald, whatever we did to put that slide on the left, I can now not move the... Uh, I, I'm having trouble with all so. Can you see if it'll advance to the next one? The one after this overwhelming destruction, just one down from this. Yeah, let's see if I can get it to move now. There we go. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not sure what that's doing up there. Okay, so a writer in Nature magazine in 1889 stated that a flight of locusts that passed over the Red Sea in November 1889 was 2,000 square miles in extent. 
and upon the assumption that it was 48 miles square, half a mile deep, contained 144 locusts, each weighing 16 ounces, talking about each group of them, to a cubic foot, he calculated it contained 24,420 billions of insects and weighed 42,850 millions of tons. That's a lot of bugs. Uh, a, a second, similar, perhaps even larger flight was seen passing in the same direction the next day. And in Cyprus in 1881, up to the end of October 1st, 600 million egg cases. Uh, that season was collected and destroyed each case containing a considerable number of eggs. By the end of the season, over 1,300 tons of eggs had been collected, and not less than 5,076,000,000 egg cases were, it is believed, deposited in the island two years afterwards. So you can imagine this is, this is uh, an amazing, overwhelming thing. So in chapter 2 and verse 1, Joel tells us we need to sound the alarm. He's trying to sound the alarm, and he says we need to be doing that too. When they had these walled cities, they would have some guy walking on top of it that was the, the watchman. Okay, And one of the duties of the watchman was, when they're walking on top of the wall, is they were supposed to look for the least little signs of danger and alert people. The fact is, you probably are all familiar with, I think it's Proverbs 4.23, where it says, Guard the heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And the idea is, we gotta, we got to watch for the little tiniest danger tugging our hearts away from Jesus Christ. And we've got to pounce on it. We've got to sound the alarm. We've got to do something about it. By the way, that's also an interesting verse for married people because uh, a woman is called the heart of the home. Man may be the head of the home. Woman's the heart of the home. And it's out of her are the issues of life. It's out of her that the children come. And so one of the jobs of a man in the home is to protect his wife spiritually and protect her from her own uh, weaknesses and, and minister to her needs so that she can be that, uh, that mother to the children and you can be the father to the children that you need to be. So the idea is be a watchman. And you've got to look for little dangers. It's just little things that can start taking your kids away from the Lord and little influences, the wrong friends, the wrong programs, the wrong books that they read, all these things can start to pull them away. Now, in Ezekiel 33 is a passage I'm sure we've all heard before, but it bears reading again because it talks about the responsibility of this watchman. It says, Son of man, speak to your people, and you must say to them, A land, if I bring it over it a sword, and the people of the land take a man, one from their number, and they appoint him for them as a watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land, and he blows on the horn, and he warns the people, and anyone who listens hears the sound of the horn, and he does not take warning, and the sword comes and it takes him, his blood will be upon his own head. For he heard the sound of the horn, and he did not take warning, his blood will be on him. But if he took warning, he saved his life. And as for the watchman, if he sees the sword coming and he does not blow the horn, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and it takes their lives, he'll be taken through his guilt, but his blood from the hand of the watchman I will seek. In other words, God says, if you're the watchman and you don't sound the alarm, then you're guilty of the, the blood of, of that person because you didn't sound the alarm to let them know the battle was coming. Well, that, that's all fine and good for us when we think about the concept of uh, the people that are coming uh, in, in, a, in a battle, but it's also true spiritually. We know that without Jesus Christ, 
people go into an eternity in the lake of fire, that they have no hope. And so it's, it's absolutely essential that knowing this, that we sound the alarm, that we share with them, and without Jesus, judgment's coming. Now, that's not a very popular message, and, and uh, I have not found the verse yet where God called me to be popular, but he did call me to sound the warning. So we have the same duty as Christians that the watchmen had, and that's what we need to do. Now, what should you do when you hear the horn blown? Well, the appropriate response is fear, and then action. Uh, the minute you hear the, the trumpet blown saying the enemy's coming, there should be a, a response of fear, and then right after that, it should be a response of action. He says, or is a horn blown in a city, and people are not afraid? Or does a disaster occur in the city, and Yahweh has not done it? So when you hear the horn, you know, fear and then do something. In other words, fear and then prepare for battle. And that response was especially appropriate uh, since the day of the Lord was indeed coming. Now, for those who are the objects of God's judgment, the day of the Lord is not described in great terms. It's a day of darkness and of gloom and of clouds and of blackness. And again, he's thinking back to Exodus 10 about the blackness that was so bad that the Egyptians could not see each other. Even if they could light a lamp, they couldn't see the lamp that they lit. All light was gone. They were basically operating the blind. Meanwhile, the Israelites in Egypt were still able to see. So darkness is often associated with God's role as a warrior. In Deuteronomy 4.11, it says, And so you came near, talking about people standing near the bottom of Mount Sinai when Moses is up getting the law of God handed to him. He says, So you came near, and you stood under the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire up to the heart of heaven, dark with a very thick cloud. Now that's interesting. Moses on the top saw a, a fire etching the, the word of God into tablets of stone, but people down below saw lightning and thunder and dark clouds so much that it said they trembled uh, at it. In Psalm 18.9, the psalmist says, So he bowed the heavens and came down with a thick cloud under his feet. This idea that there's this uh, darkness. I mean, why, why would it be dark anyway? Um, God, for one, God has to conceal his glory. Pastor mentioned in his sermon last week that, uh, that people don't see the, the glory of God directly, and yet Moses was able to see the hindermost parts of God as God passed by. Moses was placed in a cave, and God passed by, and Moses kind of got to see uh, something of the backside of the presence of God. Uh, so one thing is, the, the cloud's probably to protect us from the absolute holiness of God, because if we saw it, it would surely kill us in our sinful state. Uh, there's another reason, and I think it's that our sin is the cloud. It's the thing that blinds us to the holiness of God. And it's only in the presence of God, when we're on the other side of glory, that we will see what uh, John saw in the book of Revelation. Uh, we'll see that, uh, that great white throne and the one that's set upon it. Um, Psalm 97.2 says, Cloud and thick darkness are surrounding him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Uh, I, I think we just can't bear the sight of absolute holiness uh, while we're in our sinful flesh. It's just not going to, to work. Now, who is this approaching army that Joel is talking about? Because if you really read those words in Joel 2, it sounds very much like he's still got the locust in mind. He says their heads are like horses and locust heads look like horses. In fact, it's the German word and the Italian word for a locust 
literally translate as hay horse. In other words, it's a horse that eats hay, but it's a very small one <laughs> and because it devours what's out there. So a lot of people think that, well, he's talking about a coming invasion of the Assyrians or a coming invasion of the Babylonians, while others think that this battle that's coming that Joel talks about is something that has not yet happened. It's eschatological, meaning it's, it's happening in the last days. And, and I think I tend to place myself in this latter camp here because there's some aspects of the prophecy that uh, I think are yet future. Uh, yes, you can have locusts flying overhead enough that it will cause a significant shadow on the ground, but he's talking about the sun during the day and the moon by night and the stars not even giving their light anymore. I think that this is something more cataclysmic than what happened when the Assyrians or the Babylonians invaded, although that certainly may have been a partial fulfillment. But regardless of which way you look at it, there's several things that are true of this enemy. It's an overwhelming force. It talks about they look like horses. They come in swiftly. It's kind of like the idea Jesus said that uh, his coming would be like the thief in the night. Uh, the day of the Lord would be like a thief in the night. It's going to come so swiftly that you're not prepared for it. It comes noisily. Uh, there have been anecdotes about uh, actual locust plagues and that somehow or other the locusts get in sync with one another when they march so much so that you can feel the ground tremble now you'd have to have millions and millions of insects all marching in sync but you could probably feel that now that would be an amazing thing i'm sure you've all seen the video at some point in the past where they built this bridge and uh, it was one of the first big bridges they built over water and it was fine for a few weeks and one day a little bit of a breeze came up and the breeze caused the bridge to vibrate. Next thing you know, it's undulating like a snake, and then it just explodes, basically, because they didn't account for designing the bridge for vibrations. Now when you go over a long bridge like that, and uh, in Key, uh, the Key Largo, Florida area, there's a seven-mile long bridge. But if you go over that bridge or any other long bridge, like you see sometime through the bayous of, of Louisiana, You'll constantly hear this clackety, 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 clack because they built all these little seams or expansion joints in the road so that wind uh, vibrating, it doesn't cause the whole bridge to undulate and blow up. It, uh, there's room for the concrete to move a little bit and also to expand with uh, heat and contract with cold. We, we have to make bridges where they'll move in order to not blow up. Well, imagine if you have a large army and they were marching constantly in sync you could actually cause uh, a destruction just from the fact that it would, it would be noisy, it would be in sync with one another, you, you could hear them coming. He says it's, it's full of anguish, and he's talking like a woman who's in, not just in labor, but she's in a very difficult labor, uh, a life-threatening kind of labor, and it's that kind of anguish that he's talking about. It's relentless. He says in verse 8 that this enemy is plunging through every single defense. Uh, in other words, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Now, you think about a uh, plague of locusts uh, 90 miles wide off of a river like we read about earlier and uh, a, a huge thickness. Probably there's not an exterminator you can call that can stop a plague that big. Uh, I've seen some amazing stuff. I, the first church I pastored, was built on pier and beam. In other words, it, they had these concrete blocks sitting on the ground and they built piers on top of that and they built the church on top of that. So you could actually crawl underneath the church if you wanted to. 
And when I got there, I noticed that all through the church were these little holes, about the size of your thumb. Your thumb would about fill the hole. And there were all these little holes in the floor of the church. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd, but never thought a whole lot about it. And then one day I came in and opened the doors church. It's in the middle of the week. And the walls were moving with termites. I mean, it was I, there were millions of them. And I mean, literally, you couldn't see the paneling. And it, I was totally freaked out, and I called one of my close friends who was a deacon in the church, and, and he says, oh, we've had this problem before. He says, have you ever noticed those holes? And I said, yes. He says, well, that's where the, the exterminator sprays. And they called the exterminator out, and he sprayed, and somebody came in. We vacuumed up all the, the dead termites, and by Sunday, we were back in the auditorium again. Uh, it was interesting, by the way. It was one of those uh, cases where... You find out how fast rumors spread in the community because uh, years ago they had seen a bunch of termites coming out of one of these holes. It was the beginning of the invasion, and so uh, they called the exterminator and told him, we've placed a, a hymnal on top of the hole where they're coming out so that you can start spraying there. And somehow or other, uh, there was a version of the telephone game in that community where I guess the exterminator said something to somebody, said something to somebody else. By the end of the week, the story was that the reason the church had that many termites is there were a bunch of old hymnals buried underneath the church. It wasn't anywhere close to the truth, but I always thought that was humorous. But it, it's, it's relentless, and it breaks through every defense, and then it's invincible. Basically, it gives the idea that, hey, there is nothing that is going to to stop this whatsoever. So uh, look at verse 8. He says, Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone on his path. When they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. He says, If you could pierce one of these things with a sword, they'd keep going. In other words, there's nothing that stops it, essentially. It's an invincible uh, enemy. And it's a relentless attack. He says, They run like mighty warriors. They scale the wall like men of war. Each goes its own way. They do not swerve from their paths. In other words, they don't relent. They don't turn around. They don't go home because it looks too hard. They don't jostle one another. Everyone's in his own path. And it says, you know, through the weapons, they still are, are not halted. And they enter walled cities. They enter homes. So this is a, I think he starts with a locust invasion, but then he's saying there's a worse judgment coming. And when the worst judgment comes, it's going to make this locust invasion that we've had for years now and has destroyed all our food, it's going to make it look like a walk in the park. It's going to make it look like a little deal. And here's why. Because it's a horrific enemy. It's invincible. There's no stopping it. And basically, there's no hope. And he calls this the day of the Lord, which, by the way, that term gets used in the New Testament. Look what he says in verse 10. Before then, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars have withheld their splendor. Uh, again, a plague of locusts flying through the sky can certainly darken the ground, but to me this language seems a little more eschatological. And when we get to next week's lesson, the latter half of Joel 2, we're going to find some prophecies that definitely have not yet been fulfilled. And so uh, I believe this is looking forward to the end times. Now, in Joel 2.11, which is the last verse of the passage we're studying this morning, Joel asked a rhetorical question. Does everybody know what a rhetorical question is? That's a question that you ask, but there's no answer to it, right? Or you ask assuming that there's an answer, but you're not expecting people to actually raise your hand and volunteer to give the answer. So what's the rhetorical question? He says, who can endure this? 
In other words, this is going to be such a big attack. Nobody can endure it. So when he says, who can endure? He, the answer is nobody. Nobody's going to survive this coming judgment. Now, that is certainly true. Now, think about it. When the Babylonians came, there were Jews who survived. When the Assyrians came, there were Jews who survived. But when I read the end of the Bible, when the, in the great and final judgment day, after I believe in my eschatology at least, and you're welcome to have a difference of opinion, that's fine, but I believe that Christians have been caught up out of the world and that the final battle of Armageddon, the world's forces are going to be meeting there in the ultimate battle when Jesus Christ will come back uh, riding his, uh, uh, his stallion and, and uh, it says he has a name written in his thighs that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he's going to proclaim victory and basically all the armies of the earth are wiped out. Uh, in other words, there will be no standing against that. Uh, the army of the Lord in that day will not be the saints. <laughs> It will be just Christ and his word and the angelic beings, but it basically no one will be left standing at, at that time except those who have Jesus Christ in their heart. And that's where the I believe the people come from that start the millennial reign of Christ uh, and people are born in this world and have an opportunity to live a very long time as long as those who are born receive Jesus and then ultimately God winds up history. Now, this isn't an eschatology lesson, but I just want to point out there's never been a battle where there were zero survivors uh, for the Israelites, and yet that is exactly what he is, he is predicting. Now, so there's a call here, a call to alarm. Basically, he says, if you hear my message, you need to sound the alarm, judgment is coming, and it's the same way that we know as Christians that right now we're in an age of grace, but there is coming a time when Jesus will return, and after this, uh, mankind will experience judgment. There's several judgments. There'll be the beam of judgment seat of Christ for Christians. There'll be the great white throne judgment uh, that separates the, the believers from the lost, and then there's the final judgment uh, for the lost where they go. Uh, it says, and, and death and hell and the sea gave up the dead which were in them, and these were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. Uh, all this is part of that day of the Lord. So we don't like to talk about this part of God. We don't like to talk about God being wrathful or judging, but got to remember, this is God who gives us a chance to repent. He's a God that gives us warning to repent. It's, it's a God that gives us a sacrifice that pays for our sins, and we just have to receive Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the farthest parts of the earth. In other words, you need to be the watchman. You need to be proclaiming that judgment's coming. You need to be telling people what is available to them. Now, Paul understood this. He said in Acts 20, Verses 26, 26 and 27, he says, Therefore I testify you on this very day that I am guiltless of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from proclaiming to you the whole purpose of God. I wonder how many Christians could say that today, that uh, they were guiltless of the blood of others around them because they had always been faithful to proclaim the blood of Jesus Christ and encourage people to seek that blood to have their sins forgiven. Uh, I can't be in that number. I wish I were. And I've led a lot of people to the Lord over the last 50 years, but I know there's a lot of people that I missed, a lot of people that I didn't tell when I could have told. And so I think this passage is a good reminder to us 
We're the watchmen. We're the ones that are supposed to be sharing that with everyone else. And there's a cause for alarm. In the second half of verse 1, uh, it's interesting how he, he phrases this. He basically says, the time is at hand. He says, blow ye the trumpet Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the Lord tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, it is nigh at hand. It's nearly here. Now, what is nearly here? I think the apostles in the New Testament thought that Jesus would return in their lifetime. And he hadn't. It's been 2,000 years almost since then, and he hadn't returned yet. And so we're tempted sometimes to think, uh, well, it's not something we have to worry about today. But Jesus said, in an hour that you think not, the Son of Man cometh. In other words, he's going to come precisely when all of us say, He's not coming today. That's going to be when he's going to show up. Uh, We don't know when he's going to come. It's going to be sudden. And it could be any moment. It could be before we finish church today. It could happen that soon. And I am to the age. I don't don't know about y'all. I've gotten to where I just don't like listening to the news anymore. I'll read a few headlines every day just to see if there's anything significant I want to delve into, but I don't listen to the news, and I don't watch the news because the Bible has the most current news that I need. I, I look at enough to make sure that I'm aware of the most significant world events, but my soul would just get down and discouraged and roll around in despair if all I did was listen to the news media today. And in fact, I think it may be one of the worst things that we can do. We should at least make a point of listening to God's word before we listen to the news media. So if you want to stay informed, fine, but stay informed in God's word first. If you don't have time to read the Bible and listen to the news, read the Bible. I figure if something's really bad, somebody's going to tell me about it anyway. But the day of the Lord is coming and near. It's imminent. It's sudden. And it should result in the trembling of the land's inhabitants. The coming judgment, it says, will remove all vestiges of hope from the faces of those under judgment. Listen to verses 5 and 6 again. Like the sound of chariots on the tops of mountains, they leap about. Like the sound of a flame, a fire devouring stubble. Like a strong army arranged in rows of battle. From before them nations writhe. And he says, all faces turn pale. Um. I don't know if you've ever been with somebody when they got really tragic news, but sometimes you just see the color leave their face. They're so shocked that you see the color leave their face, and their faces are ashen white, simply because under shock the body closes down capillaries in the extremities, and it pulls all the blood to the core uh, of your body so that the organs and the heart and the lungs can function but that's why people's face sometimes under shock go white and he's saying this is going to be such a big deal that the faces of people are just going to turn pale um, because there's such a big cause for alarm now another thing that's interesting about this enemy that's coming is he talks about the horses and the chariots and at this particular time in history Israel had a foot army and infantry. They marched where they went. Uh, there weren't an abundance of horses and chariots. The king might have one. Maybe the commanders might have one, but it was very uncommon for anyone else to have one. So it was an army that marched and they walked and they 
ran, but they, they didn't have all this. And yet he says this army that's coming against them is going to be full of horses and chariots. In other words, it's going to be overwhelming. You imagine back in this day when you're fighting with spears and swords and you're on your foot and you've already walked uh, you know, 20 miles that day and you're exhausted and tired and you're just about to, to settle down and get a drink of water when all of a sudden you hear this thunderous clap of hooves coming and, and you see this army of, of horses pulling uh, a host of chariots and the people inside the chariots are all well armed and they've got spears and they've got uh, they've got the things on the chariot wheel that will cut people's legs when the chariot wheel passes through them and, and you would be terrified and and he's basically saying this this coming day of the Lord this judgment's going to be overwhelming it'll be the kind of overwhelming power you've never encountered previously Jesus spoke of this day in Matthew 24, and he says, And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. That's going to be unlike anything that we've ever experienced up to this point. And that's why I think that this passage in Joel, which says essentially the same thing that Jesus repeated in Matthew 24, is an eschatological prophecy, something about the end times. Paul said to the Thessalonians, For you yourselves will know that the day of the Lord is coming in the same way as a thief in the night. Uh, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will disappear with a rushing noise and the celestial bodies will be destroyed by being burned up and the earth and the deeds done on it will be disclosed. The fact is, if you read 2 Peter 3, he says something very interesting. He basically says that the elements will be loosed with a fervent heat. And the word elements in, in uh, Greek there is the word we get Adam from. He's basically saying that the bonds that hold atoms together are going to be released. In other words, it's not going to be just a nuclear explosion. It's going to be the ultimate nuclear explosion where there's not two atoms of this world that are still together. So when the Bible says, I saw the new heaven and the new earth, he does not mean a retread job of this one. There won't be so much as one atom that's been tainted by sin left of this world. Now, you say, well, how can God loose all the atoms at once? Because in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that today it is Christ. He says all things are kept together by Christ. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So all Jesus has to do to let all the atoms disintegrate from one another is quit upholding what he's upholding today. He just has to say, I'm done, I'm not holding it together anymore, and poof, it all goes. What's the only thing that's going to be left? People with eternal souls. And the new heaven and the new earth. It's going to be all that's left. And that's and everything else is going to be burned up. And isn't it funny how much of our lives we spend trying to acquire all the stuff that's going to be burned up? Maybe our focus is wrong. This army is coming, not composed to God's people, but it's considered to be directed by God's powerful voice and strengthened to execute his word, and it's a great and terrible day of the Lord. So what are we to do? Well, in terms of what we're supposed to do, as bad as the locust plague of Joel 1 was to Joel and the people of his day, it wasn't the worst thing that could ever happen to a nation or to a person. The day of the Lord described in Joel 2 verses 1 through 11 and the other passages we've mentioned are a far more ominous and serious reality. And the only way to prepare for that is to make sure that you have repented 
of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. By the way, I'm going to talk about this in my message, but there's a big difference between going up during an invitation to church and mouthing the words, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, please forgive me of my sins, because a lot of times we can do that because somebody else did it. Our buddy or our brother or sister went up to the aisle and talked to the pastor and they did that. But if we ever really truly receive Jesus Christ, it changes us forever. It transforms us for the rest of our life. doesn't mean we can't backslide. doesn't mean we won't ever sin again. But it does mean that we can never do it comfortably again. We can never do it again without feeling the chastisement of the Lord. We can never do it again without knowing that we have grieved the Holy Spirit of God. We have a relationship that changes our life. Repentance means not just to say you're sorry, but it means to change course. Have you ever had somebody? I'll tell you a quick story. Very first church I pastored, uh, when I went there, there was a problem. Uh, The problem was is that the youth director was a woman and she was not saved. Now, I'm pretty sure that's a problem. And uh, so I'm I'm trying to talk to her about it, one thing. And then one night during prayer meeting, everybody's out playing volleyball. And I don't have a problem playing volleyball. I want to see us get this stuff mowed as soon as the water dries up enough to get the mower out of the shed. I want to get this mowed, put up a new uh, volleyball net, and play some volleyball ourselves out there. I'd like to enjoy that. Uh, I enjoy playing volleyball. Uh, But uh, they had volleyball during prayer meeting, and it was so loud out there you couldn't hear what was going on inside. And it it sent a bad message to the young people that you could pray or you could play. But prayer, you know, God never called us to be a house of play. He called us to be a house of prayer. So several people says, well, you need to go talk to Angie. So I went outside and I, I talked to her. I said, Angie, uh, I said, I'm, I would love to be out here playing with you and the young people. And it's great, but we need to understand that when we're having a worship service or a prayer meeting, it's important for our young people to learn how to pray. And they should be in with us. And we had real prayer meetings where we prayed and, and we took turns praying for things and it would have been a great thing for kids that had never learned how to pray from their parents they could have seen it modeled at church and she just blew up uh, she blew up big time so she drove off said she'd never be back and she stormed out I mean she peeled rubber in the church driveway a little later that night Judy and I are at home in the parsonage and she she didn't even knock on the door. She just burst into the parsonage. And uh, she says, well, I'm sorry. Now, have you ever had anybody say I'm sorry like that to you? Well, I'm sorry. It was about that tone of voice. I'm not exaggerating. And I responded very graciously. But i got to tell you what I was thinking. When somebody said it like that, there was a little part of my fleshliness that wanted to say, yeah, you kind of are. But I responded graciously, and I said, you know, we really need to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus Christ and what's really important. Well, she stormed out. She never did come back to church, and she went on to uh, live a lesbian lifestyle for the rest of her time. Now, I did not choose that lady in that position that was something I inherited when I became pastor there 
But had she truly repented, you wouldn't have just heard the words, I'm sorry. You would have seen a change in her behavior. You would have seen a shift in, in what she did. And that's what we're to do. We need to express our sorrow and grief toward God over our sins, but then we also have to live a new kind of life. And the only salvation that, that gets us out of coming judgment, Mark 1.15 says it well. It says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. I need to repent and believe. And I, I would go one step further because I think you need to read John 1.12, but it says, But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. It's not enough to just believe Jesus. You have to receive him. You need to ask him in your heart to be your Lord and Savior. Romans 6.23, For the compensation or the wages due sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the only solution. We got the wages on one side, we got the gift on the other. We got sin over here, we got God over here. And if we want to get from here to here, we have to go through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10, the only cure. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth one confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew nor Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Today we can say there's no difference between black or white. He's the same God of all. Who is rich to all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's, that's what uh, we need. Well, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. And I appreciate your kind attention. We've got a lot of folks out today because of the holiday. So all of you are very special because you showed up. And I appreciate that. Doesn't mean they're not special too. But, and I know there's other folks like Chris and Desiree that are not able to come because of the challenges they're facing with Jubilee right now. And there's others who can't come because of their health conditions. And I'm I'm so thankful that we can meet online for these folks, and I'm very grateful that people have continued to give even when they can't uh, be here physically. But uh, let's pray. Let's remember when we pray today to pray for the, the larger body of Christ, including those who are out there in cyberspace with us. Let's pray. Father, would you today help us to honor and glorify you? Father, we don't like talking about coming judgment. We don't t- like to talk about the lake of fire. We don't like talking about spending eternity apart from you. And yet that's all a part of the gospel. And Father, if we know this kind of disaster is coming, we ought to be doing something to tell people about it. Now, they're not all going to respond. Some of them are going to laugh at us. Some of us are going to ignore us. Some of us are going to say it's a conspiracy theory. But we still have the responsibility to share the truth. Father, would you give us the courage to do that? And every day so much the more because, as the writer of Hebrews has told us, the day is approaching. The day is closer. We are one day closer to the return of Christ than we were yesterday. Father, may you keep us ever mindful of eternity and realizing that We need to take as many people with us into your presence as we can. Use us to do that. Father, be glorified today if we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you.